cannot tell you what a joy it is to be here with you. I have just gone down memory lane, driving down Rotary Drive to get here this morning. I just teared up all the memories, thinking about Carol Bay and about your sweet dad. Um, your, your mom and dad were so good to us. Is there anybody here, just by chance, who was on the pulpit committee that brought us here? Is there anybody? There you are, one. I've got a book for you, one of Mac's books you, you deserve. <laughs> I'll see me right afterwards and I'll give it to you. Um, those were just seven wonderful years. I was thinking, that's when our children grew up. When we came here, Courtney was 11, Trey was nine, and Wills was five. And if you had Wills in Sunday school, oh boy. You know, they would meet me in the hallway every Sunday and say, let, let me tell you what Wills did, and I would just hold on to the wall, hold on. Some things never change, I'll just tell you that. Some things never change. Still, when the phone rings and I see it's Wills, I still wanna just hold on to something. <laughs> what is he asking for, what does he need? Um, but let me tell you about those three children, and those of you who, weren't here and don't know, but you'll just have to bear with me for just a minute. Um, Courtney married a preacher boy. Can you believe that? I found him for her. I'm a little bit of a matchmaker. <laughs> she was a journeyman. She was over in Lebanon, and she had to come home for some health issues. And I had found Barry. He had walked by my desk. He was an intern at First Dallas, and he saw her picture on my desk, and he said, who is that? She is beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Those of you who have daughters, the antenna went up, and I said, well, that's my daughter. He said, she's just gorgeous. And so when she had to come home for these medical problems, I, I said, Courtney, I want us to take this poor guy. He's a seminary student. He doesn't get to eat steaks. Let's take him out for a steak dinner. She said, Mom, she knows me. I am not going to sit beside him, and I am not interested in him. Well, on the way home from dinner that night, we dropped Barry back off at the dorm, and she looked at me. She said, Mom... I think you might have done something this time. <laughs> and the rest is history. She came home from Lebanon and, and married the man of her dreams. He now serves on staff. He's Mac's discipleship pastor and is probably the best uh, pastor, the best minister that we've ever had. They have six children. Six children, two rabbits, a dog, four cats, and a squirrel, and a squirrel. Uh, a squirrel fell out of a tree, and Courtney is Ellie Mae Clampett Jr., like I'm Ellie Mae Clampett, and they nursed the squirrel back to health, and it's now gonna be a part of their family now. So we're, she's my best friend. She's my best friend in ministry. I talked with Lisa Apple and several who have uh, daughters who have grown up and are still dear friends, and it's just such a blessing. I don't know what I would do without her, and I don't know what she would do without me, to tell you the truth. With six children, I'm her backup plan. You know, they're all involved in different things, and we were at Ace's ball game um, on Halloween because the littles, we call her little children, the littles wanted to go trick-or-treating, and she and Barry took them trick-or-treating, and we went to Ace's game. So I love it. I love this time in my life when I can, and can help her. Trey uh, is a pastor. So many of the roots in, in what God was calling them to be were developed right here in this church, I want to tell you. They'll go back and say that they began hearing God's voice, just speaking to their hearts when they were here. Trey served with us on staff at First Jacksonville for, I guess, five, six, seven years, and then he went to start a church in uh, California, Burbank, California. He was there for several years, and then as we left First Jacks, he was called back to a church called 1122. I don't know if y'all are familiar with that. It's a huge uh, mega church there. Joby Martin is their pastor. They have nine different churches. They run about 30,000 in those nine churches on a Sunday, and Trey is over all nine of those churches. He has a pastor's heart. He can preach better than his dad. I'm not supposed to say that, but he is, he learned from the best, and he is just such a, a gifted preacher, really good preacher. They have five children, and they are in Jacksonville, and then our baby Wills, can y'all believe this, has five children. <laughs> it's, it's even hearing it coming out of my mouth, it's still so hard to believe. He has five children, uh, and he is in marketing in Jacksonville, and they're doing really well. Both boys are married to Rachel's, because nothing is ever simple in my life. Both of my daughter-in-laws are Rachel, and we, just, we love getting together. When we all get together, it's 24 of us. It's a zoo. 
It's a zoo. That's all I've got to say. Um, we're going to see them this Christmas instead of them coming to see us. Uh, great memories here. Great, great memories. As I was talking with some of you before, I just, I just teared up a little bit. What a great staff we had here. Y'all remember Miss Lorraine? Loved Miss Lorraine. Matter of fact, I still stay in touch with her via Facebook. There are some negative parts of Facebook, but there's some really great parts too. I stay in touch with so many of y'all via Facebook, and I love that. Um, CW, we just had a great staff. We used to have wonderful, y'all remember Wednesday nights here? I love Sunday morning, I love Sunday night. My favorite uh, service of the week was Wednesday nights. Ruth and Dot, and I understand that one of them just passed away this past week, would fix us great meals. What I remember is spaghetti. They made the best spaghetti. Well then for the, didn't she, do you remember? Well then on Thursdays after, after dinner on Wednesday nights, and do y'all remember the crowds we had on Wednesday nights? People don't do Wednesday nights much anymore. But we would have to, we met around the tables here for a while, and it grew so, y'all remember, we had to eat here and then go over to the sanctuary. We had so many people that they were sitting on the steps, going up the steps there. We were just overflowing on Wednesday night. It was such a blessing. Um, those were just such good days, such good staff. But Dot and Ruth would fix lunch for us, leftovers, on Thursday. And that was our, our bonding time as a staff. What, what fun we had. C.W. was just a nut. He was so much fun. He, he was a nut. But let me tell you something. He kept everything going. He was a fabulous administrator. And with he and Miss Lorraine and all of us together, I started thinking, did we have any you know how you think back and all you can remember is the good times? I said, Matt, do you remember any negative times? God just blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed there. Let me tell you all a funny story. The one negative thing I can remember, and this may, you may remember, I bet you you're going to remember it, Dale, was when Mac told, I think it was Robin, I think it was this preceded Miss Lorraine. Robin was working back there, and they needed vacuum cleaners. You know where I'm going with this. Do you remember this, Dale? And so Mac told them, just go pick up vacuum cleaners. Uh, I think CW gave them the money. Here's the money. Go pick up vacuum cleaners for the preschool. Well, a couple of days later, we had an irate young couple come in, so upset, so upset over this that they were going to leave the church, and they did leave the church over this. They bought, what, what did they call? Something that had devil in it, vacuum cleaners. <laughs> dirt devil. They bought dirt devil vacuum cleaners, and they thought that was horrible that you were going to use a dirt devil vacuum cleaner and then to make matters even worse they were red <laughs> you can't make this stuff up y'all you cannot make this stuff up so they got so upset that they actually did leave the church i don't know where they are now i hope that the wife isn't here today but if so let me tell you something everything grew and did great even when they were being cleaned with dirt devil vacuum cleaners Okay, we were here from 92 to 99. I don't know if y'all remember, but in 1997, there was a reality show. This was when reality shows were just getting started. Today, you can't turn on the TV without seeing some kind of reality shows. This is when they were first getting started, and there was a popular show that is still going today, 25 years later, and it was called Survivor. Started in 97, there have been 43 seasons if you can believe that, 624 episodes. Literally, you see, there have been survivors all over the world. Let me, let me give you the premise in case, I don't really watch this, but let me give you the premise if you don't watch it. It's a reality show with contestants. They're strangers to each other initially. They bring them together and they take them to a remote location where they compete to survive for the season. I've never read this, but as I was looking over all of this, I'm thinking, you know, Hollywood loves evolution. I think they got this idea from Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species, which says the organism that is best adjusted to their environment has the most success at surviving. So that's what this is. It's a survival game of sorts. They pit one against the other. They vote different ones off. There's the ongoing challenge to provide for their physical needs, for food, water, shelter but also their competitive challenges where it tests the contestants mentally, physically, and emotionally. And then they aggressively eliminate each other until at the end of the season, there is one sole survivor that's left and they take home a million dollar prize. You know, I can't help but think 
that there should be a survivor for Christians? Are there days that you feel like all you can do is just hang on to survive? That's certainly been true in the last two years during COVID. You know, COVID is our new reality, isn't it? It's our new reality show. We've lived through a pandemic of global proportions, and now we're living through the myriad of effects that are lasting after the worst part of, of the, the uh, pandemic. And I think they're probably going to last probably throughout the end of our lifetime. The pandemic reshaped our life, didn't it? From the work ethic, have y'all been in stores or in restaurants? Nobody wants to come back to work anymore. They got used to being home and nobody wants to come back and work. I was reading as I was in bed last night about a Boston law firm that has just said, okay, we want everybody to come back under roof. 60% of the employees have said, no, mm -mm, we're not coming back. They're saying that they've lost the ability to focus in an office space. You know, I think you lose your ability to focus when you're at home, at least I do. I'm a little ADD with so many things to do. I think I need to get in an office space to focus, but they've said no. And they're saying they've got increased stress in the work environment, and they're just not going back to work. How about academically? Have y'all read just recently the latest reports about our children, our grandchildren, when they tested in grades three through eight and how they are so far behind? It's gonna take them who knows if they ever will actually catch up academically? It's affected us with government overreach. Whether you're a Republican or, or Democrat, you have to admit the government really stepped into parts of our life that I don't think they needed to be with making churches shut down. And I'm just gonna tell you, Mac has said, no matter what the government says from here going forward, we will not shut down the church again. We're just not gonna do that. We're, those who can come will come. How about the looming economic crisis? Uh, you're getting a false sense of security if you're going to buy gas because that's gonna change, I'm sure, after next week. Have, have you been just to buy things in the grocery store? We went to Walmart the other night to buy our dog food. We've got two tiny little Yorkies who don't eat that much food, but I do have to buy them dog food. It used to be for 10 pounds, I think I paid $7.99. In Walmart last week, I paid $15.89 for a shrinking bag. It's down to seven pounds. That's just, that was just, that hit me, that's almost double for less than half of what I used to get. Things are changing, our world is changing. And I, I told Mac, I said, you know, you thought you were gonna retire in a few years? Mm -mm, I'm figuring probably 112 now. <laughs> I'm figuring you're gonna be there to 112. Things have changed, our outlook has changed. If you've watched the Survivor Show, you know that castmates can be sent to a place called Exile Island. Do you ever feel, as a Christian woman, that the world wants to put you on Exile Island. It's a place of complete isolation. It seems to me that the mission of the world today is to isolate us as Christians. In today's cancel culture environment, it's the Christian morals that they really want to silence. How do we survive, ladies? How do we survive in this world? How do we survive in a world that wants to silence us that wants to isolate us, that wants to mute our voices? How do you live under the constant pressure, the constant stress of making ends meet? We're living in a decidedly anti-Christian world, yet we're Christians. How do you cope with the schedules that have gotten completely out of whack? How do you deal with difficult people? How do you maintain integrity in a world that is totally me-centered? It's all about me. It's what's good for me. How do you find peace during the inevitable storms of life? We all go through them. How do you juggle family responsibilities when there's so many distractions in an uber-busy world? How do you find joy in the midst of the microscope that the world wants to put us under? Well, I tell you what, I think that the answer is God's survival guide. And what is his survival guide? It's his word. That's how we find peace. That's how we find comfort. If you look, I've, Courtney and I put together a little survival guide. What we've done is we've taken some scriptures that have been especially meaning to, uh, meaningful to us during times in our life. And if you'll open up the front page, 
If you're dealing with a lack of peace, you'll see on page 32, we've pulled out scripture that'll address that. If you need forgiveness, if you're living in fear, if you need help, if, if you're waiting, if you're, and we've spent a lot of our time in the waiting period, we've just gone through and we've pulled out scripture that's especially meaning for us. So when you go to work, if you don't wanna take your big Bible in, take this and stick it in your, uh, the top desk drawer and just during the day when you need to pull out God's survival guide and see how you can make it through the difficult time that you're going through, pull this out or maybe you just need to share it with somebody who's going through a difficult time and tell them you hope it'll be an encouragement to them. I pray it'll be a source of of strength when you're struggling, but I also hope it'll be a source of encouragement and joy when you're on that mountaintop in your walk. I want us to take just a few minutes to look at one of my go-to psalms for difficult days because I find when I, I need to just open up God's word and, and look for encouragement, I almost always will flip to the Psalms and go through that. And I can almost always find the Lord speaking to me in a Psalm there. Well, I want us to take a Psalm that's especially um, important to me, and that's Psalm 91. I want us to allow God to show us how to survive as Christian women through Psalm 91. God's Word is a survival guide in days of difficulty. Now, all the Psalms are they're, they're, they're so wonderful, they're so rich, they're so replete with God's voice as you read them. But Psalm 91 has become a favorite of mine. It's so rich, it's so comforting. Uh, I want us to, to hold it up, to dissect it, to hold it up to the light like you would a diamond and just let God's light reflect on it and show us all different facets of his personality there. First, I want you to note, because the first thing you want to ask yourself when you look at Scripture or when you look at a book of the Bible, you want to ask yourself, who's the author? You want to look at the setting. We don't know for certain who the author is of Psalm 91. I think Moses' fingerprints are all over it. Personally, I think Moses wrote it. Really don't know. Uh, Moses certainly understood days of difficulty, days of isolation, days of loneliness, days of despair. Let's just think about his life for a minute. He grew up in a palace, you know the story. Pharaoh had said that all of the male children were to be killed and Jochebed, Moses' mother, made a basket, put Moses in it. Uh, Miriam helped and Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out and she raised him. She took him as her own and raised him in the palace. So Moses was a man who was raised in a palace, but he was always an outsider. I can just imagine, because I know that I as a mom and now as a grandmom, when, when I'm holding my children, I'm telling them stories, stories about their legacy. Don't you know, because Jochebed nursed Moses, and that was a wonderful story, you need to go back and read if you're not familiar with it. Don't you imagine that every time she held that little baby and as he got older, little boy, she was telling him about his heritage. She was telling him how Yahweh saved him I can imagine that though he was raised in a palace, he knew, I don't really fit there. These are not my people, it's not really my world. We are outsiders in this culture. Though we live here, scripture tells us we're not really a part of this. God has a different home for us. We're looking, we're focusing on a different home, not our circumstances here. So for the first 40 years of his life, we're gonna divide Moses' life into three sections of 40. The first 40 years of his life, he lives in a palace. He's treated like the heir apparent. But one day, one day when he turns 40, Moses is out walking over this great expanse and he sees one of these overlords, Egyptian overlords, beating a Hebrew. Now, God's word tells us that it was so difficult on these Hebrews. The Egyptians were such difficult taskmasters that the word that's used to describe the groanings is that these Hebrews screamed out in pain. They were under horrific oppression. And Moses comes up along and sees one of these Egyptian overlords beating one of his kinfolk, one of the Hebrews, and he kills him kills the overlord, buries him in the sand, and probably thinks it's been forgotten and nobody knows. But the very next day, he's out walking again, and he sees two Hebrew brothers 
fighting, and he tries to break them apart. One of them turns around and says, and what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed the guy yesterday? And Moses realized what he did was not done in the secret, but Pharaoh would find out. Pharaoh would try to take his life. Now, all of a sudden, he's not just an outsider to the Egyptians, but he's also an outcast to his own people. So he goes out into the desert for the next 40 years. 40 years. This man goes out where nobody knows him, he works as a shepherd when he was a brilliantly trained man, had been to the best schools, the best academies, had been trained as royalty, but he goes out and is a shepherd. And you know, I find it interesting. I was just thinking, we don't know anything about those 40 years. And who wrote the book of Exodus? Who wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch? Moses. So if Moses had wanted to tell us anything about those second 40 years, he would have put it in the book. But you know what? I think he felt like not one good thing happened during those 40 years, so we know nothing until, until the burning bush, when God speaks to him, when God says, I want you to take off your shoes and I want you to listen because you've been in a place of preparation, Moses, for 40 years. It's taken 40 years for God to get Moses out of Moses for God to get the Egyptian training out of Moses. And finally, at the end of that 40 years, God says, now Moses, I've got a job for you. I've got service for you. I'm ready to use you. God uh, came to Moses and Moses encounters God at that burning bush and it's gonna forever change the trajectory of his life. He tells him, take off his shoes, he's on holy ground, he's in the presence of Yahweh. And once Moses' focus is off of himself, is off of poor pitiful me, is off of the things that were important to him in Egypt, as soon as it's off of him and can focus on Yahweh, God says, okay, I'm ready to use you. God could use him in ways that Moses never imagined, and he's 80 years old. Do you think God's through with you, ladies? Some of you who were here when we were here, you know, I'm thinking now in my 60s, is God through with me? Absolutely not. God may have the best days of your ministry still ahead of you. Maybe he's had you in preparation for something all this time, and he's ready now to put you into service. But follow him on for just a minute before we get to the psalm. Follow Moses uh, on with his new call to service from God. He and his brother Aaron relay God's warnings to Pharaoh, his knees must have been knocking because we know he said, I, don't think, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't speak for you. So his knees must have been knocking as he and Aaron went, but he was faithful. He was faithful to the Lord. And then we think, well, gee, after all the plagues and after Moses finally gets the people out, things are going to be so much better for him. But no, that's when things really uh, get difficult. Uh, there were grumblings among the people. They were thankless. They were a cantankerous. I'm sure there must have been times that Moses just wanted to throw his hands up. But he kept following the Lord's directions. He could have focused on the problems. He could have focused on the negative people around him, as we often do. Or he could look to Yahweh, who led him every step of the way. God provided water, manna, guided him, protections, let me ask you, where is our focus in the day of difficulty? You know, so, so often we're just running around, uh, talking to everybody, trying to work out our problems. And hey, I can raise my hand because I'm a doer, I'm a fixer. So I know I, I can do that. I can get my mind off of, of, of the God who wants to guide and direct, and I can get it on me, and I can think, oh, poor pitiful me. There's no way I can do this. When you come to that point, God says, okay, I've been waiting for you to get to that point. Now, I can step into your world and I can help you. So what I want to do today is to challenge us. I want to challenge us through Psalm 91 to focus on Jesus, not the world around us, not the world that's in chaos, but to focus on Jesus. We want to survive, but we don't want to just survive. I want you to see that you can thrive when you're walking with the Savior, when you're dwelling with Him, when you're living with Him, when you're listening to Him, when you're talking with Him, you can do so much more than, than just survive. You can thrive.
Now look, if you've got your scripture, look to uh, Psalm 91. And I want you to see, as we peel back the layers of this psalm, that there are three movements in the psalm. Verses 1 through 2 is the first movement. And you're going to notice the personal pronoun, I. The psalmist, I believe it's Moses, but the psalmist is declaring his personal faith in God. Verses 3 through 13 is the second movement, and that's you. It's the singular pronoun. What the author is doing is he's speaking personally to us. He's saying Debbie. He's saying June. He's saying Mary Beth. He's saying Lisa. Hey, Lisa, good to see you. He's pointing to each one of us, and he's talking to us individually. And then verses 14 through 16, it changes back to I, but this I is God. God's the speaker, and he's telling us what he will be and what he will do. So let's keep that in mind as we go through this. We're going to go through verse by verse. Verse 1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. This is the thesis of the psalm. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. The psalmist promises blessings to those who live in close fellowship with the Lord. What does the word dwell mean? It literally means makes your home. He or she who makes our home a place close to the Lord. It's someone who constantly and consistently dwells with the Savior. It's a place where the psalmist habitually abides. It implies an intimate relationship with the Lord. And what is the secret place? It's a place of precious refuge. It's a place forged over time as we pray as we listen and as we earnestly seek God. So I know you're thinking, does it have to be a place? I don't think this dwelling, this secret place, necessarily has to be a place. Now, I have a place in my house where I love to go to read scripture and to pray and to talk with the Lord. It's in our bedroom. It's a big, oversized chair. It's kind of like a big old stuffed chair on steroids. And it looks out over the lake in our backyard. And that's that's a precious place for me. But let me tell you where I dwell the most with the Lord, and that's out when I'm running. I'm a runner. I ran three miles down Main Street this morning. I run three miles every day, seven days a week. That's my prayer time. That's the time when I am intimately talking with the Lord. I was praying over all of you who were were here. I pray through all of my children. Name them one by one. Pray the Lord's blessings, the Lord's protection on them. That's a precious time for me. I don't want to run with anybody else. I don't want to get in a running group because that's when I dwell with the Lord. I don't know where your place is, but you find a place where you can have an intimate time with the Lord, not just throw up a casual prayer. You know, for some of you, if you're sitting in line at a bus stop, that might be a a good place for you just to have a book that you pull out uh, and you just pray through scripture. You pray your, your prayer to the Lord and you're listening for his voice. That's, it's, it's not just a place where when you're in trouble, you run to him, but it's where you habitually go and the Lord speaks to you. What is the shadow of the Almighty? It's a place of protection that implies nearness. All this is nearness, intimacy. Uh, it's a hiding place. Verse 2 says, I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him will I trust. What do you keep hearing? My, my, my. Again, it's a personal relationship. He's not just a refuge. He's not just a fortress. No, this psalmist is saying, I have spent precious time at the feet of this Savior. He's my protector. He's my refuge. He's my fortress. Well, let's break that down. What is a refuge? It's a quiet retreat from a pursuing enemy. It's where a bird would fly to escape a hunter. We have so many chipmunks in our yard. Do y'all have a lot of chipmunks? My goodness, we must have a thousand of them. And when the, the Yorkies get out and they start chasing the chipmunks, it's where they, the hole that they run into. It's, it's a place of refuge, a place of protection. How about a fortress? That's a defensive term. It's a strong tower that's ready to meet attacks. Psalm 1828 says, The Lord is my rock and my 
fortress. Second Samuel twenty two thirty three. God is my fortress. Psalm thirty one three. You are my rock and my fortress. You're going to start seeing this pattern. Proverbs eighteen ten. The name eighteen ten. The name of the Lord is a strong tower or fortress. The righteous run into it and are safe. That's a favorite favorite verse of mine. Look at home at Psalm 71.3, Psalm 91.2, Psalm 144.2. Over and over and over in Scripture we see that the Lord and his word are strong fortress for the believer. Verse 3, surely he shall deliver thee, us, from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. He's saying even the most skilled deceiver can't trap us. What is pestilence? It's disease. It's error. It's sin. Literally, he's saying he will deliver us from the destructive event. Specifically, and this is interesting for us, it refers to an epidemic that is unpredictable. So here in Psalm 91, the Lord is telling us he's going to preserve us from an epidemic that is unpredictable. It's a threat that's unseen. Verse 4 says, he shall cover thee with his feathers. Gosh, this is just such a beautiful word picture. And under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and thy buckler. It's a beautiful word picture of a mother hen who protects her chicks from danger. Look at that. God covers us with his love and his protection. Picture that when you're going through difficult days. That's exactly what God wants to do for you. <clears throat> the words shield and buckler are military terms. I found this so interesting as I started studying. A soldier, you've seen the, on the movies, a soldier would move behind a huge shield that he wouldn't put in front of him. You've seen a march in the old movies with the shield in front, and it protected him all the way up front. Uh, a shield of faith in Ephesians 6 is what we're told to take up that protects us from flaming arrows that come our way from the evil one. The shield protects from the fiery darts that are meant to immobilize, immobilize us and prevent us from serving. But the buckler, another word for buckler is rampart. It's a fortification of earth that literally surrounds the soldier. Just picture this surrounding you as it goes into battle. It provides protection all the way around. So what the psalmist is saying here is, God wants to be your shield in front to protect you from what's incoming, but he also wants to be your buckler, the rampart that surrounds you. Let me tell you, you might not need this today, but there's gonna come a time when you are walking through a difficult day and you're gonna need to remember this. God's going to be in front of us to protect us and he's gonna surround us with his love and protection. Psalm 91 states that the Lord's truth, his truth is our shield. The buckler surrounds us, too significant because they provide protection and security. Together, they provide mental relief and a sense of absolute safety and protection for Christians. Ladies, that is what scripture, God's truth, provides for our lives. The Word of God gives you protection and it gives you security. There's no reason to fear. When you get that phone call in the middle of the night, remember, God's already gone before you. He's your shield. He's your buckler. There's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to be wondering about tomorrow because God's already there. God's already going to take care of whatever tomorrow brings. There's no reason to live in the world of what ifs. Is there anybody who does that? But what if? What if this happens? What if that happens? God's word assures us that no matter what if is there, God is already there. God's word is both our shield and our buckler. God's word is your survival guide. His truth is literally his faithfulness. It's his solemn pledge to us. Let's go to verses 5 through 6. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night. Now remember, he's pointing to us. He's talking to us individually. Debbie, you shall not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth 
at noonday. The psalmist is talking about those things that are seen and unseen, those problems that we know are coming, as well as those difficulties that take us completely by surprise. If Moses is the author, I think he probably was remembering God's promise to Israel during the Exodus. In Exodus 13, 21, it says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them all the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and by night. God's there with you during the day with the problems that you see and in the nighttime with the things that we can't see coming. His word is going to provide that for you. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. A thousand shall fall at thy side, 10,000 at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shall thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. That's God's justice. Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. Literally, you've made him your dwelling place. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Here again, evidence that Moses is the author. He remembered the plagues in Egypt and the fact that the Lord marvelously, miraculously protected his people from the the plagues that you remember, the flies, the boils, the hail, the thick darkness, the death angel. The entire world might quake as we've seen them do during COVID. But God upholds us in the midst of the storms of life. Such security if you're going through a day of difficulty. How about verse 11? For he shall give his angels, plural, charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. In my Bible, I've got noted that this is for my grandchildren. I pray this every morning. I prayed it for them this morning as I was running. Lord, uphold, protect my children. Hold them up. Keep them safe. Keep them protected. It's all the angels, not just our guardian angel, which I do believe we have, but God commands all of his angels to keep us secure. His angels watch over us with his special care. But there's a caveat. In all thy ways, our ways must please the Lord. Proverbs 3, 6 says, In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. Our ways must be his ways. Now go to verses 12 through 13. They shall bear thee up. Literally, it says when you feel like you can't take another step, they're going to bear up. They're going to hold up. And I think about this picture when I'm going through a difficult time and I feel like I just can't take another step. They're going to hold you up. Literally, hold your legs up in their hands lest you dash your foot against a stone. Thou shalt tread upon the lion and the adder, the young lion and the dragon shalt thou trample under your feet. What he's saying is literally from the strongest animal to the most cunning foe, God is stronger. He's going to watch over you. Now, I want you to note, because this is an important change of voice here, because all of a sudden God is going to start speaking. Notice the promises for those who love him. Verses 14, because he hath set his love upon me, upon the Lord, Therefore will I deliver him on high, because he hath known my name, yada. He hath known intimately my name. It's not just a head knowledge of who he is. It's not because we deserve it, because, ladies, we deserve nothing. It's because of who he is. Even with our imperfections, he makes these promises to those who love him and dwell in his presence. What does it mean to deliver him on high? He'll set us high above the danger and fear. This is not a promise that you're not going to have problems. But it is a promise that he's going to carry you through whatever difficulty you're going through. And verse 15, and I've I've put my name in here. Debbie shall call upon me and I will answer her. I will be with Debbie in trouble. I will deliver her and I will honor her. Go back and Write this verse out and put your name in it. Put it on your mirror where you brush your teeth in the morning. Let this be a reminder. Call on his name and he's going to be with you. All of these I wills, precious promises from God. And then in verse 16, with long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. Long life, it's not a promise to prolong our days, but it's an even greater promise for a full and complete life. Added to that, the promise of salvation in heaven, our hope in Jesus Christ. 
You know, I told you that Trey's now serving on a church staff in Jacksonville, Florida. He came home for the holidays, and I walked in the den when he was working on a sermon. He had a screensaver that caught my attention. You see it here. It's a quote by John Piper. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. You may be aware of three of them. Oh, how true. So often we feel like we're contestants on Survivor for Christians, but we need to stop and realize that our life is so much more than just what pops up right in front of us. You know, Sharon, I was thinking about, about you today. Y'all remember Sharon Kemp, who you surrendered here to go to Germany, didn't you? It's when you were here. Um, she went to Germany. They served for, was it three years? Served for three years, and then when they came back, we snatched her up, and we took her with us to, to Dallas. We left here and served in Dallas for seven years. You know, it's funny. We served at the church we were before here uh, in Virginia for seven years. We came here and served seven years. We went to Dallas and served for seven years. We went to Jacksonville and served for 12 years and should have left after seven, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> that's another story for another day. Um, things were going great in seven years. Eight, nine, 10, 11. It was that 11th and 12th year that got a little testy there. Um, but anyway, I was thinking, we're going to Germany. Mac's gonna teach at the, sermon, uh, the seminary over there in three weeks, we're gonna go over. We just developed such a love for Germany because of you and George. Y'all came home and you told us about all that the Lord was doing over there in Germany, and he just did something in our heart. So when we were in Dallas, we partnered with the seminary there and with some of the pastors there, really because of y'all. So y'all thought that you were just going there because God had called you, but really he was working on so many different levels, and he does that. He did that to develop a passion in our life so that now we've committed. First Dallas worked with this seminary, first Jacksonville worked with this seminary, and it is one of the probably, is it the only conservative seminary in the area, and they are turning out believe it or not, in Germany, conservative pastors who were changing the face of that country. Well, our love developed because you guys had such a love for it. So God's working on so many different levels. Um, I think that God has shown me that through the years. About 34 years ago, I went through a really difficult time. It was before we came here. As a young mom, I was 30 years old, I had three young children, uh, I faced bilateral mastectomies and reconstruction. Just a year before my mother had died, a horrible death, death from breast cancer. She had had it since she was 53, developed at 53, and then died at, at 63. I now have lived two years longer than my mother. That is so hard for me to believe. But I would go to MD Anderson with mom. She was going back and forth out there. And her doctor looked at me, and she looked at the history of cancer in mom's family. Mom's mother, my grandmother, had died of breast cancer. And her three sisters had died of breast cancer. In those two generations, seven of the nine women had died of a very aggressive kind of breast cancer. So mom's doctor looked at me and said, it's not a question of if for you, but when for you and your sisters, that I, I can just almost guarantee you you're going to have breast cancer. Well, after mom died, I began noticing some changes in my breast tissue, and I went to uh, a specialist who said, y'all just stop and think. This is 34 years ago. This is before Angelina Jolie did this. The doctor said, I just think that we need to remove your breasts. I hadn't gotten a diagnosis of cancer at that time, but some of the same symptoms that my mom had seen early on, we were seeing in my breast, and he says, I just think you need to go in and have bilateral mastectomies and reconstruction. I did that. I went in for 11 and a half hour surgery. I was a guinea pig for a new type of breast reconstruction where they took my latissimus muscles from my back and they brought them around to form my breasts. Um, 11 and a half hours of surgery. And let me tell you, if anything could have gone wrong in that procedure and in the days following, it did go wrong. We had 333 doctors, I think, who were up watching the surgery. This was a doctor who had just come up with this kind of reconstruction and it was a breast symposium. And there were three of us, um, I think of the three people that had the surgery that day, I'm the only one that's still alive, but they were watching the surgery. Well, it was rather radical. You stop and think, you're moving all that breast tissue. I didn't have a whole lot of extra tissue back there. Um, so I lost a lot of blood. I had my surgery on Friday, and Sunday, Mac was preaching, because he's a preacher, and you know, that's what they do on Sundays. <laughs> could, could not bear with me, he was freedom. I don't have any problems with that, no long-lasting <laughs> issues with that at all, but 
he was preaching and uh, the doctor, I lost so much blood that the doctor had the nurse to call him out of the pulpit while he was preaching. The, the, the surgeon's mom had died of some kind of, something that she had uh, received in a blood transfusion and he didn't want to just go to the blood bank and get blood. So he called Mac to get people from our church to leave church and to come to give, to donate blood for me. Some of them still remind me that I'm what I am because of their blood. <laughs> so they did that. I had to do that uh, a couple of times. Then I developed a vacuum in my breast, which was horribly painful. You can't even imagine that. Then they couldn't get the incisions to close up. I was like I was walking around with a swimming pool on my back. It was, and they had to keep going in and putting tubes in my back to drain that fluid off, which was horribly painful. When I finally got to go home, five, I think it was five days later, I developed a horrible bladder infection and I had to turn around and go back to the hospital. So it was just one thing after another. And let me tell you something, all through that, I kept thinking, Lord, you put me on Exile Island. Yeah, I, you've forgotten me. Here, I've given my life to you. Uh, I have I wanted to be a veterinarian, and I think I would have been a pretty good veterinarian because all I do, I'm Ellie Mae Clamp, but I love animals. But Mo, when I married Mac and he wanted, was going to be a pastor, I felt like that's what the Lord wanted me to do. That was my mission field. He was my mission field. Um, I thought, Lord, you've just, you've forgotten me. Here I'm going through all of this, and all I've wanted to do with my life was to serve you. But God works on so many different levels, doesn't he? I couldn't see then what was coming in a few years. Let's fast forward. We're here now. We're pastoring the church here. I'm, I'm doing well. I've, I've gotten past most of, most of those problems. Had a surgery not too long ago to fix one of them, but I've gotten through most of those problems. Mac and I are serving here at Green Street. The church here was such a great mission-minded church. One of the mission projects that we started, and y'all let me know if anybody went to the Riverboat of Hope. Did anybody do any of the Riverboat of Hope? Y'all remember, we did several of them. Well, on this first one, Joe Hester, who was a pastor in Thomasville, had such a, such a heart, such a love for the people of Ukraine. The wall had fallen down several years before, and the situation there in Ukraine, probably worse than it even is today. They had no medicine very little food. It was a dark, depressive place. They didn't know the Lord. And, and Joe Hester decided, I want to get North Carolina pastors, North Carolina churches together to go and minister to these people. So we did. We went on what is called the Riverboat of Hope. And let me tell you something, it was not the love boat. It was, I, I think back now, I not only didn't have water in my room, none, no, no running water at all, but even electricity, if I wanted to dry my hair or anything, I had to go sit out in the hallway, and sometimes one of the plugs would work. This was after Chernobyl, so you couldn't eat the vegetables, you couldn't eat the fruit, everything you went to put in your mouth, they were saying, no, 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 you can't eat that, you can't do this, you can't go there. For the first time in my life, I remember going to bed hungry when we were there, but God had a great work for us. We took Bibles, thousands of Bibles. We took medicine, and Max just got such a great story about how God provided so miraculously for the medicines that we took. We took some food. What we really wanted to do was go encourage the pastors. We brought the pastors on board the ship, and this, I know these aren't good pictures. This is way before iPhone 14. Um, this is a picture that we took from outside. At night, the men, the pastors would get out and would, would do a revival, and you see we would have thousands, thousands of people that would come. But during the day, we would stop at major ports all along the Dnieper River. And on this first riverboat that I went on, um, one of the first mornings there, they would herd you out to the buses. You didn't know where your bus was going. It might be going to an orphanage, might be going to a, a military area to, to uh, try to encourage the soldiers. It might be going to a business area. It might be going just down out on the streets to do some street evangelism. Might be going to a hospital. Uh, might be going to a school to talk with the children there to tell them about Jesus. Uh, but on the bus that I just happened to get on, and y'all know about God's happenstance, I surely, every step is ordered. On the bus that I happened to get on, it happened to go to a hospital, and this is a loose translation, it was a filthy place where people went when they were sick. They had no medicines. They showed us their little tiny medicine cabinet and it was just, it was just horrible, empty, 
we had taken them a lot of medicines. Um, and then they divided us up when we were on the first floor, and you go to this floor, you go to this ward, this ward, this ward. Well, I took an interpreter with me, and I went to a ward, opened the door, and when I walked in, it was a U-shaped room, all women, and they were the beds were U-shaped in there, lined up around it. And I asked the interpreter, can you tell me what's, what's going on with these women? And she talked with somebody in there. She said, they've all either had breast cancer or they've just had breast surgery. So I went and sat at the first bed with the woman who had just come back. And I, I told her, I said, I've come from the United States. I've come to share with you about Jesus. Can I talk with you? Yet. No, she was in pain, obviously. Yet. No, she didn't want to talk with me. So I got up and I went to the next bed and there was a woman who had just been wheeled in and she had what looked like a filthy linen napkin that they had folded up. They had no sutures. Couldn't suture her up. They had removed the lymph nodes from under her, her arm and they had put this filthy cloth under her arm. And she obviously was in pain. They had no, no pain medication. So I went and I sat down beside her and I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I know, I know how painful and how frightening it is. I pulled up my shirt. We were all women in there. I said, do you see my scars? I've had the exact same surgery that you've had. I've had that. I've had my nodes taken out. And I pulled up and I showed her on my back. I said, can you see the surgery that I've had and where they've gone back in and they put all these tubes? I said, I understand what you're going through. Can I tell you how I made it through? Well, she reached out and it was like a lifeboat holding onto my hand. Please. So through the interpreter, I began, began telling her how I had had such fear too. There'd been so much cancer in my family, but God walked with me every step and I began sharing scripture with her. Do you want me to tell you how you can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Oh, yes, yes. So I began sharing the Roman road. I began sharing with her. And at the end of that, she said, yes, yes, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. The first woman had heard this and she called me back over. I went back and I shared with the first woman, went to the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth. And by the time I got around that room, God said to me, do you think I'd forgotten you now? Do you see, do you see I had a purpose for what you went through? Because had I not walked that walk that those women were walking, I don't think they would have listened to me. It was such a difficult time for them. So one by one, and here are some of those sweet ladies, one by one, I was able to share with them how Jesus, could, he, he was a survival guide for them. He could get them through whatever difficult time they were going through. And I've prayed through all of this, at, through, through all of this war with Russia that's gone on. I've prayed that these women were able to tell their children and their grandchildren. And through these difficult days, because God works on so many different levels, maybe he had me there to tell them so that they could share with their children and with their grandchildren. And they have hope, hope in what is a hopeless time over there. That's my prayer. Ladies, I don't know what you're going through. I do know that if you're not going through a difficult time, in all likelihood, you're going to go through a difficult time. We're either, we're either coming out of a difficulty, we're in the midst of one, or we've got difficult days ahead of us. I don't know what your difficult time is. You know, through this, the, God, the Lord has just given me so many opportunities to share with him. Just last week, I'm friends with a former neighbor on Facebook. I haven't seen her for, oh my goodness, 35, 40 years, maybe longer than that probably closer to 45 years. She was my next door neighbor. She got married, moved away. I got married, moved away, and we really had lost touch. But just within the last six months, she uh, friended me on Facebook, and she started telling me that she was going through the same surgery that I'm going through. Now, she's a Catholic. She says she knows the Lord, and I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna trust but verify. So through all of this time, I've been sending her every day, I send her a scripture. I send her something to encourage her. I've been telling her, I'm praying for you. She's been through a divorce. She's gone through a very difficult time and she feels like she's all alone. And I've just tried to be that, that link to her um, through that. So you just don't know how God will use the difficult time that you're going through. Is it something that I would have ever wanted? Well, certainly not. But you know what? The Lord knew that there would, there would be a time that he could use those days in my life. Life can be difficult, even in ministry. 
it can be difficult. We went through something five years ago that probably aged us 10 years in the 18 months that we went through it. I don't know what you're going through in your life, but I can say with assurance that the Lord is going to take care of you. Maybe you're having problems with your children and you feel isolated and you feel forgotten. Maybe you're dealing with the difficulties of watching your parents face major health problems. We went through that with Max's parents. Every day could be a battle as you're shuffling bills, trying to decide what you're going to pay this month. Perhaps like so many women that Mac and I counsel, counsel, maybe you're facing great bouts of depression and anxiety. The latest statistics tell us that one in four children, and you're probably familiar with this, face depression and anxiety as a result of the pandemic. You know, we feel like we are, we're on the other side of that, that those statistics should be getting better, but now we're inching towards one in three children who have anxiety issues. These are precious children whose greatest concern should be whether to play football or ride their bike when they get home from school but they are feeling the weight of the world on their tiny shoulders because of the anxiety and stress they see in their parents. Now, our anxiety and stress is affecting the next generation. What do we do with our worries? What do we do with our, our, our anxiety? God's word for us today is that he doesn't want us to just survive. He wants us to thrive. In the midst of days of difficulty, we can place our trust, our hopes, our tomorrows, our families, our very lives in his hands. Spend time in his word, ladies. Dig into his word. Dig into his word and make it your own. No matter what you're going through, you can trust him. I promise you, you can trust him. He's going to carry you through it. We can live victoriously today. Battle's been won. God is the victor. He loves you. He sent his only son to die for you. He has a plan for you. In closing, I want to remind you, we forget about our identity in, in Christ. We let the world tell us who we are. We let the world just throw so many negatives at us. Let me, through Scripture, walk you through who you are in Jesus Christ. Number one, you are loved. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 says, knowing Brethren, put your name there, knowing Mary Beth, that you are beloved by God. Number two, you are chosen. Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, you were on his mind before creation, that we might be holy and blameless before him. You are accepted, Romans 15, 7, therefore accept one another just as Christ accepted us to the glory of God. You're redeemed. These are just going to build. I get so excited. You're redeemed. Isaiah 43, 1 says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jesus says that about you. If you know him as Lord and Savior, he says, You are mine. You are precious, Isaiah 43, 4, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you. If you're feeling low, read that. You are precious in God's sight. Don't let this world tell you who you are. You are forgiven. Colossians 2, 13, when you were dead in your trespasses, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all, not some, not most, but having forgiven all our transgressions. You are cleansed, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You are renewed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Does Satan want to pull up something that happened before you came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, something before you put it under the blood? Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. You are empowered. 2 Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, everything to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his 
own glory and excellence. It's all about him, not about us. You are gifted. You think you can't do anything? Mm -mm, you are gifted. Romans 12, 6, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. You are useful. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship. Just, just think about that. We are his creation, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, not to go on the shelf. You were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. You are blessed. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And finally, you are victorious. 1 Corinthians 15.57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't it just make you want to shout? Don't let the world define who you are. Look to God's word, his survival God. Let his word define who you are. You can trust the Lord's precious promises, every single one. You can survive whatever this world hurls your way, but you can do so much more than survive. Thrive in the knowledge that the Lord sees you, that he loves you, and that he's going to carry you to victory.